I'm Lisa Fine, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the Great Women in Compliance podcast. You are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report. Check out Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network, and it posts every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. You can also join in the conversation at the GWIC community on LinkedIn as well. In this episode, I have back fan favorite Mike DeBernardis. Mike is a partner at Hughes Hubbard. We take a look at key enforcement actions and issues from Q2 of 2021. I know you will enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and we're in for a real treat today because we have Professor Karen Woody with us. Karen, uh, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. I'm always happy to be here. And that's, uh, I think, Associate Professor at uh, WNL. Uh, along the uh, educational lines, we're about to begin a new semester in August. What are you going to be teaching in fall 2021? That's a great question. Um, and we will be back in person, I hope, um, if everything goes according to plan. Uh, this fall, I will be teaching torts, so the sort of first semester, first day of law school to the incoming 1Ls. Uh, so that's one of my classes. And the other class, sort of the other side of the spectrum of law school, it's, and uh, I guess if you could say upper grad, you know, upper level course on insider trading. So uh, I'll, I'll see both ends of sort of beginning and end of law school for some students. Well, my claim to fame at the University of Michigan School of Law is I was the first person called on the first class of the first day. And that was the highlight of my law school career. And it was all downhill after there. So uh, (laughs) good luck to the first person who gets called on. Exactly. Well, Karen, I've been wanting to visit with you about um, kind of where the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission is now. And I recognize we're still into the early part of the new administration, particularly for some of the agencies and commissions. But maybe start with uh, some of your early impressions of uh, the SEC. One of the things that, frankly, I have enjoyed a little bit more is I've seen a fair amount of debate uh, by SEC commissioners in the public arena. And is that something that's been going on all along? Is it more now, less now, or is it something different? You know, it's. I do think it's a little bit different right now than what we've seen in the past, at least historically. You know, what it is, is, you know, the SEC commissioners are appointed um, and there are five commissioners and they are appointed by virtue of what their political affiliation is. So that right there already sets us up for an interesting um, dynamic among the, the commissioners themselves. And typically it's the, the political affiliation hasn't really played much of a role, if any, um, among the commissioners. But, you know, there obviously is knowledge that that certain commissioners are affiliated with certain political parties and the administration obviously would have um you know three uh, commissioners from the uh sitting administration's party and the other two um from the other political party and that like i said hasn't been something that you know has made waves or really is acknowledged all that much and there certainly are times where one would have to guess which political party some of these commissioners affiliate with. Um, but that has seemed to be a little bit in the past, um, certainly since uh, the Trump administration, but arguably maybe before that somewhat. Um, as these debates have become sort of more along political lines at the commission, I think we see 
uh, commissioners really break. Um, it's, it, what feels a little different now is they're, they are more vocal about the break. It's not simply the votes are three to two. Um, there's been sort of published dissents um, and, and certain things where, where commissioners are being a little more vocal about their disagreement um, among the commissioners. And I, that's, I think, um, a little bit of a, a new thing. I mean, not, not too long ago, there was one commissioner who had been an advisor for uh, commissioners of different parties in different administrations. And I don't, I don't think you would find that now. I do think there really would be more of a political litmus test for you to work for one commissioner or another, um, which I think is, is too bad. Well, Karen, is um, Chairman Gary Gensler has been in that position probably, I think, for four months now. Uh, do you have any early impressions of either Chairman Gensler or where he may want to take the commission, or is it really just too early to tell at this point? Well, you know, I don't actually think it's too early to tell for uh, Gensler in particular because he's not, a, you know, he's not a Johnny-come-lately to D.C. by any stretch uh, of the imagination. He previously was chairman of the CFTC under Obama, and before that he had a, a few roles at the Treasury Department, um, both as undersecretary for uh, domestic finance and assistant secretary for financial markets. So he's certainly not new to D.C. Um, and to sort of this political role in some ways, although obviously one would not call chairman of the SEC necessarily a political role. But he's, he's, he's not new to the, to the city and to how agencies work. Um, and so I don't think there'll be many huge surprises. I think you could do a decent amount of due diligence on his um, leadership style and sort of his priorities. So I, d I do think we'll be able to see that. I, I think his um, priorities will very much align with the Biden administration. Um, he is someone who, uh, which is not uncommon to DC, but he is someone who works in the industry that he now regulates. And I think that does, afford him a little bit of a perspective because he did 18 years at Goldman earlier in his career. So it's not to say he's a captured regulator by any means. Um, that was certainly a long time ago, but it does give him the ability to understand um, the industries he's regulating, to understand Wall Street. Um, and I think to have some appreciation for maybe their side of, of the debates that he might the, uh, be entangled in. So I think we'll see, like I said, um, him being a progressive leader for sure and following along with the priorities of the Biden administration. And we're already seeing that um, sort of come to fruition already with some of the, the moves and the pushes he's made, um, certainly in ESG and other areas that we, I think we'll just con continue to see that. Well, what are some of the top priorities you've seen so far, uh, Karen? Well, as I mentioned, ESG is at the forefront of everyone's mind, um, and Gary Gensler, I think, is someone who is very much uh, animated on, on pushing just uh, pushing those rules. Just this morning or yesterday, he had announced that he would like to see the sort of climate risk ESG rules um, in place by the end of uh, this this year, so at least the proposed rules from the commission. So we obviously see him really leaning on his staff to get those um, in in the works. Um, that obviously I think will be a very important one. Um, it's interesting because ESG, uh, which I know we'll talk about more maybe later, but uh, 
I would say right now, I feel like the of the sort of trinity of the E and the S and the G, there's a lot of push on the E. I think people see that coming. They understand that a little bit, like climate risk um, and climate exposure, sustainability efforts uh, seem to be, I think, taking the lead um, in sort of the umbrella of ESG. So I think we'll see those maybe first. Um, other top priorities... Some of them, you know, have been uh, reactionary, meaning they became priorities in, in response to something that had happened in the markets. So by that, I mean sort of the meme stocks, the GameStop type ideas. Um, that's obviously something that, that flares up and the SEC then has to sort of get involved and then think about how to prevent something like that going forward. So I don't know if I would have said that was a priority as much as it sort of very quickly rose to the top of the agenda. The other things I think I will surprise no one when I say cyber, uh, digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, um, all, of, all of that sphere, I think, is going to be very much at the top of um, this uh, of the commission's agenda. And let me turn to some specific topics and let me start with SPACs or special purpose acquisition corporations. Where do you see SEC enforcement going around SPACs? Uh, Lordstown Motor, Motors has had a lot of publicity uh, and has been in the news quite a bit. Could it be a harbinger or is it really just another, simply just another accounting fraud case? To answer your question, I don't think um, the SPAC enforcement actions are going to go away. I think the SEC still very much has that in um, sort of, in their targets. Uh, I think Lordstown Motors is an interesting case, but if anything, I, I think the more recent enforcement action against Stable Road, uh, Stable Road and Momentous merger, what I find interesting about that one, which is different than Lordstown, is that the SEC jumped in and prevented actually the merger. So it was one of the, the only enforcement actions we've seen that occurred prior to the closing of the proposed business combination. So, and, and that was about, you know, due diligence and making sure that investors are aware of what, you know, the merger would be. So the reason I think that's more interesting, because to me it signals that the SEC is taking a hard look at this and they're taking a hard look in a preventative sort of before the merger is um, sort of consummated and that, to me, seems like they really are prioritizing this. They're not just waiting for the fallout after the fact. They're really they're stepping in earlier. And so whether or not that will be sort of the trend going forward, I'm not sure. But I certainly think it signals that the SEC is taking this back market very seriously and trying to do what they can to protect investors because the SPAC by its nature already is a bit of an end around of you know the traditional IPO um, process which has been stood up in theory to protect the investors that have, um, you know, invested in these companies. So uh, I, I do, I think the SPAC enforcement actions aren't going to go away. I think there still will be a very hard look at any proposed SPACs um, going forward. You know, the SPAC market has cooled. It seems a little bit. I don't think that's entirely from, you know, a harder look at, from the regulators. I think that's part of it. But I, I do think it's more that it was such a flooded market that it's a little tricky now for SPACs to find sort of good marriages, sort of good companies that they want to merge with. Um, and, and so I, I actually think that that's more of the 
the reason for some of the cooling. It was so flooded that now they're they're really taking the time trying to find uh, good partners. I mean, that's certainly what we saw even um, with the Ackman's back uh, a few weeks ago. So, um, so we'll see. I don't think it's I don't think the SEC is going to take their foot off the gas on on SPAC enforcement. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Karen Woody. So do you find that type of uh, preventative approach really consistent with the regulatory uh, uh, schemes that the uh, SEC typically will do in terms of uh, post, post-action enforcement, or, or is it well within the, the wheelhouse of what the SEC can do uh, under the Securities Act of 1933 and 34? Oh, I love this question because this really gets me into – my speech sometimes about what I see as the role of the, of the commission. Um, and we might get to this too when we talk about enforcement and, and where enforcement is going. Um, I, I think some of what is so fascinating about the makeup and the structure of the SEC is that it, what it's in theory, I think initially it was supposed to be an agency that wasn't, subsumed by enforcement in the way that it is now. And then the enforcement division has just sort of taken over a lot of the agency and has become much more like the DOJ. We see that even with the new enforcement director, having been a former, you know, coming straight from being a prosecutor. And so that seems to be the new mode of the SEC, where I think historically, you know, there was more um, weight or, or sort of uh, meaning, I guess is the word, to use with divisions like OC or, you know, where the commission would sort of point out where the guardrails were and sort of help keep uh, companies in line, you know, but without the stick entirely that we see now from enforcement, uh, there was a little bit more of guidance and um, that I think uh, the agency has stepped a bit away from. Instead, it does seem more of a, you know, we're coming for you if you screw up, as opposed to, hey, here's some advice or some tips about, you know, after we looked at did some exams, we think there might be some risks here. We're going to tell you. Instead, it's almost like a, let's see if you screw up, and then we're going to come for you. It's, it feels a little bit more like that with the enforcement division having so, you know, sort of being the 500-pound gorilla in the room. So that's why I love your question that this is, um, to me, it's a combination of the two, which it still is an enforcement action. But it was an enforcement action sort of in almost a preventative way, like, you know, at least for Stable Road. It was a, hey, I don't think this is going to go well. Uh, so um, we're going to – but at the same time, it still was a ding on, you know, it still was an enforcement action about due diligence measures. So it's a bit of a – maybe of a combination. I, I know that might have been a far afield answer to, to your question, but I love that concept of, you know, what is the purpose and sort of the structure of the agency – and how it has moved so much, I think, to the um, reactive sort of ex post sort of view of when people have screwed up, we're going to we're going to get them in trouble. Uh, actually, no, it's exactly uh, the answer I, w- I was hoping for, us, and we may have to watch that uh, as well uh, down the line. Uh, let me turn to my uh, uh, one of my favorite topics, which of course is FCPA enforcement. We recently had an interesting case involving Tandy Leather where uh, I'm going to call it non-bribery FCPA enforcement by the SEC under the books and records or internal controls provisions. 
you and I have uh, looked at some of those cases over the years. And do you think Tandy Leather continues a trend that we've seen? Is it is it uh, is it an anomaly, or do we now have enough cases to to really think this this really is a thing? Or where do you see non-bribery FCPA enforcement going? Um, I absolutely think it's the future of of SEC enforcement. Um, in that I, I I think the SEC is reading 13 B2B of the FCPA, uh, the internal controls provision, as being entirely standalone and entirely and divorced from uh, the FCPA in terms of the bribery having anything to do with bribery. I think we will see more and more straight internal controls, you know, linked obviously to accounting measures, uh, books and records. Uh, but in theory, I think we will see a lot of those that have nothing to do with foreign bribery. So there'll be a complete sort of split um, away from the fact that that provision of the, of the code rests in under, you know, an, an, a foreign anti-corruption measure. And so I, I think it's a powerful tool and the SEC will pick it up and run with it to say, you know, we're going to ding you on internal controls and any that have to do with any uh, sort of part of your organization. We saw that with Andever last fall. Um, and then we saw it earlier with the United case, which was an NPA, but still a similar internal controls action that had nothing to do with any sort of foreign transaction or foreign bribery at all. Um, and so I, I think this very much will be the, the you know, the way that the uh, agency and even the DOJ potentially goes forward um, with looking at internal controls. So we'll use that provision. Karen, uh, one other topic in the news continues to be crypto. Uh, what, if any, role do you see for the SEC in crypto regulation, uh, whether it's as crypto as a commodity to be invested in or crypto as a, a some sort of uh, uh, monetary uh, payment system? Is it a financial instrument? Is it something else? Or maybe I should have started with what's the SEC's role in crypto? That's another great question. It is sort of the $64 million run right now and implicates um, sort of scope of agency jurisdiction, because if it's a commodity, of course, it should be, um, you know, regulated by the Commodities Futures, uh, the CFTC, the C uh, Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Gosh, I had to think about that acronym for a minute. Um, but the CFTC has jurisdiction over commodities. And the CFTC and the SEC have sort of parallel tracks, but seem to have been getting closer and closer to each other in uh, what the overlap, if any, of their jurisdictions, and particularly in this area. So is a cryptocurrency a security? Is it a commodity? What's interesting to me is if it is a security, the test that we have used to define a security is called the Howey test. And it comes out of a case that is nearly 100 years old. And it has to do you know, with orange groves. And it has nothing to do with crypto, obviously. And so it's, to me, an, uh, a situation where the principles of that case still hold up, but I do wonder if um, if we almost need a new test given the new era that we are in. Um, and so to, de to determine if something is uh, a security, the Howey test basically asks if this is you know an investment with the expectation of future profits. That is, um, the profits will come from a common enterprise in which 
the investor relies on the efforts of a third party, meaning I don't invest money and then I work for the company and hope that it grows. It's, it's a complete sort of passive investment is the definition. Um, and so, like I said, that definition and that test for what a security is has held up for quite some time. But now that we find ourselves in this sort of interesting new world where we have uh, instruments such as crypto, Bitcoin, these things that don't squarely fall under one of these definitions, I do wonder if maybe what we need to do is to then create a new definition or, you know, without sort of saying, well, I guess this, you know, misses the Howie test on these few aspects. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's time for us to really just sort of decide it is this or that, you know, it is, we were, we will regulate this as a security or if not, we will regulate this as a commodity. Um, and, uh, I think the time we've spent sort of haggling and debating and litigating that question, um, is, it's, it's, it has been um, has left more people sort of in the dark and, and, and uncertain about the future of this and who regulates it. But I do, I do wonder if maybe we should move past what seems to be some outdated test to define those things. That's not exactly an answer to your question. I think there certainly is some jockeying between the agencies, um, SEC and CFTC, to um, sort of be the prominent regulator of that sphere because. Uh, there's so much happening there, and there's obviously such a demand and need for regulation because uh, people are getting really nervous about you know the astronomical numbers in those markets. So um, I, 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 we will see how I think that that ends up. Karen, are there any other areas that you are looking at uh, from the SEC either for uh, guidance or enforcement other than what we've touched on a little bit in this podcast? Um, you know, there's, it's always an interesting uh, time when there's a new administration to see if things will shift, priorities will shift or not. Um, there's not any other major area that jumps out. I, I have a personal sort of uh, interest always with my scholarship on things like insider trading, which I think will be, it always proves to be an interesting area of the law and seemingly still dynamic in terms of definitions of what it is. Um, but we do have some movement, actually, not from the SEC, but from Congress to have a more clear um, statute defining insider trading. Um, so that is an area that I think I will be closely following, um, uh, especially because we did see another recent case about someone hacking into getting inside information and how the courts are still sort of uh, doing a lot of gymnastics to help to get to a place where that still counts as insider trading. Um, even though it looks almost more like a straight theft, if anything. So there's a lot in that area that I think is still dynamic and, um, and, and is sort of interesting to keep watching. So that's one area that I personally always have an eye out for. Um, but like I said, I think the crypto area, SPACs, uh, all those, and obviously ESG, those, those I think will still dominate the headlines for quite some time. Karen, as we look into the future, uh, do you have an idea of when we might see either Chairman Gensler or the commission itself start to hit its stride under the new administration? Will it be a year? Could it be longer? Would we actually need to wait for a second Biden term if one comes? Or do you really think we might see things in the uh, uh, second half of this year? I think we'll see um, sort of a quick pace of, by the SEC under this administration. I think, like I said, Gensler's been in D.C. and has, you know, has been a commissioner of the CFTC. There's not a lot of 
I don't think there'll be a huge learning curve for him. Um, we now have a new enforcement director who I think will have um, a, a charge to really to come pretty quickly uh, out of the gate and in a in a not very cozy relationship, I think, with the white collar bar, the way usually enforcement directors have. A lot of them come straight from a firm um, or maybe from uh, a bank. And so this is a change in that we have uh, a new enforcement director who's straight from being a prosecutor. So, you know, the attorney general of New Jersey. So I, I think this will, I think the pace will be quick on, uh, on the SEC um, hitting a stride and certainly, you know, enforcing its, its rules to the extent that it feels it can. Karen, when are we going to see a Karen Woody podcast? <laughs> uh, hopefully soon. I'm trying to get one. Up and running, and I hope to 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 you know use some of the amazing human capital of my students to assist with launching it as well. So I hope we will see that in this academic year for sure. For uh, my next question, I want to give a little background for our listeners. Karen was a guest panelist on uh, uh, the most recent episode of Everything Compliance, and in our shout-outs and rants section, she shouted out to Ted Lasso, and her shout-out was so passionate. Uh, my wife and I sat down and watched the entire first season of Ted Lasso <laughs> over the weekend, but I wanted to ask you, why do you love Ted Lasso so much? I, I mean, how much time do we have? I think it's such a great show. Well, I'm a huge soccer fan, which I know actually is already a cardinal sin to call it soccer when we're talking about Ted Lasso, because the premise of the show is that he becomes a football coach, but in uh, the UK, where obviously that refers to what we call soccer. Um, it is to me just a, uh, what feels like a diversion from a lot of maybe the other things I'm watching or this or that, that, that has uh, a little too much either gore or depression or something there. It is such a light, uh, happy show, but with such um, incredible messages. I just, I feel like it's hard to watch that and, and not, and not smile. So I, um, I, I, I've been impressed that it could hold up. Um, I thought it would be fairly one note and a little hokey, but it's actually a really lovely story. So yeah, it's a, it's a great diversion from, you know, any other news you might be watching. <laughs> well, uh, the thing that struck me about it was the, um, the screen, uh, script writing, the mm. screenwriting. It, it had some of the most incredible, obscure references, um, that uh, I've heard in screenwriting in quite some time. There was a Meghan Markle reference. <laughs> yeah. um, there was a Gatesboro, a Baptist church reference. Um, and I'm just uh, I'm screaming at my wife, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Uh, <laughs> and she's like, what are you talking about? Shut up. I'm watching the show. Uh, so it really is uh, just great screenwriting, uh, hilarious acting uh as fish out of water as you can get. Um, some memorable uh, supporting characters. I love Coach uh, um, and his chess club uh, flings uh, right. as well. Uh, so, um, and Nate the Great. I mean, how can you not love Nate the Great? Um, yeah, awesome. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, if, if you haven't watched Ted Lasso, uh, all I can say is go back and watch season one. Season two just started. Uh, the only downside is because we watched season one, we could binge and watch them all the way through. Now that we're on season two, we have to wait each Friday when another episode drops. So, uh, right. yeah. Karen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, uh, but I wanted to thank you and look forward to continuing the conversation. 
Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you're interested in history, specifically the Greek and Roman period, I hope you will check out the special podcast series Richard Lummis and I are running on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. We're taking a look at Plutarch's lives and bringing it forward for leadership lessons for the 21st century. It's a fascinating series on one of the seminal biography and textbooks of history. If you're interested in history, biography, Greeks or Romans, I know you'll enjoy it. Please check it out. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.